Welcome to Question Period. Hope you're doing well. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, Strings Attached. I want to be clear. We are not offering companies a bailout. We are making loans available so that they can weather this storm and continue to employ millions of hardworking Canadians. Which big businesses will get access to the government's new loan program? Are some of them too big to fail? Will others be left to fend for themselves? And are we headed for a massive housing crisis over unpaid mortgages? The Finance Minister Bill Morneau joins us in a minute, plus BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang weighs in on the scrum. Then, soft on China? Don't be fooled by Mr. Trudeau's phony statements about, uh, about China right now. We have been raising the alarm about this government's failure to stand up for Canada, its policy of appeasement to the regime and the PRC, and it's only now after they see some polling data that they've started to change their message. With a decision on the release of Meng Wanzhou just days away, and as China cracks down on Hong Kong, is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau too soft on China? Would a harder stance help free the two imprisoned Canadians? MPs are here to debate further steps. Plus, the final four. The Conservative race has four candidates. Do social Conservatives now hold the balance of power? Conservative leadership candidate Leslie Lewis joins us with her platform and the scrum weighs in on the great mass debate and whether we're opening up the country too fast, as the CEO of the Canadian Medical Association says. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. So large Canadian companies will now have access to millions of dollars in new support from the federal government to keep them going through this period of dramatically low economic activity. But to qualify businesses, well, they have to have an annual revenue of at least $300 million. They need to be over $60 million is the minimum size of the loan. So this is big stuff. There's no cap on these loans, but there are strings attached. Will this help trouble industries like airlines and the energy sector stay operational? Will it prevent more devastating layoffs like we saw last week with Air Canada? And are we headed for a massive housing crisis where so many Canadians cannot pay their mortgage? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Finance Minister, Bill Morneau. Mr. Morneau, uh, always good to see you. Hope you and the family are well. Uh, let's begin with this, the LEAF program to the loan packages for big businesses. How will your government decide which companies actually get access to the loan? For example, airports, Air Canada, Cirque du Soleil. Who will, who will make these decisions? The uh, program for large organizations is really very much part of our broader program for providing credit support for for businesses small and large really with the idea that we're going to be able to maintain employment that's the ultimate goal and, and have an economy that can be strong coming out of this the organizations you mentioned would all be uh, able to come to us whether they're whether they are a uh, an airport or or an airline and they'd be able to come to us and say look we want to apply for this uh, program for credit and they need to meet some conditions and you've heard the conditions there to protect you know to protect uh, taxpayers you know obviously no dividends or, or share buybacks and limitations on executive compensation it's to protect workers so they've got to meet up to the standards of collective bargaining and pension rights and to protect what we know are our, our long-term goals around uh, sustainability so right. climate related disclosures are going to be important uh, so let, we've, let, we've, let, we've given some pretty on, clear uh, yeah. conditions they're standardized across across industries 
Yeah, let me just uh, focus on two of those. First, you said uh, executive bonuses. Um, how do you dis decide, how will the government decide what's, in the, what's excessive is the, is the actual word that's used. What is excessive? Uh, Air Canada pays their CEO over $10 million a year. Is that acceptable? Uh, no. So it's not, uh, it's not a decision on what's excessive or not. It's just a decision that compensation to senior executives, including the CEO, cannot exceed a million dollars a year. So it's not about bonuses versus salary. It's total compensation can't exceed a million dollars a year. So that's a, that's wow. a clear limitation we've put while the company is, is accepting this credit. So they will have to accept that term. And of course, that's one of the reasons they're going to want to get out of this, uh, this loan. Why give loans to companies that are using tax havens, for example? Your government <laughs> wants to stamp out tax havens. Uh, there are strings attached that you've talked about. No stock buybacks, no dividends, the executive salary. Why not add another thing to sort of kill two birds with one stone? You don't want to pay tax in Canada through some tax haven. It may be legal. We don't want to do that. You can't uh, access this loan program. Well, let's examine this whole issue. I mean, first of all, what we've been doing for the last five years that I've been in this role is trying to limit the ability for firms to use any form of, of tax haven. So we've we put in place this approach to restrict ability for firms to move money around to find lower tax rates. Uh, so that's been an ongoing effort. So that's been a very good effort internationally. We've limited the ability for firms to do that. But more importantly in this program, let's just think about what's happening here. These are firms that are going to come to us because they don't actually have profits in most cases. They're actually going to be in losses. So it's not about the the way that they manage their profits. And they're going to have to show us that the money is going to be put forward for Canadian investments to support their right. Canadian business. Let's talk about accountability as this huge amount of money is going out. Look, debt and deficit are a big issue. Uh, the debt could top a trillion dollars for the first time. The parliamentary budget officer said that the best case scenario for the deficit, 252 billion, probably closer to 300 billion now. Um, as Kevin Page, the former parliamentary uh, budget watchdog, told me, you can't have uh, accountability without a plan. When will you have release a fiscal update so we can actually have a plan and have some accountability on all the spending? Look, this is a really important question, Evan. I couldn't agree more that we always have to have a high level of transparency and give people information. Through the crisis, through COVID-19, we've been giving uh, parliamentarians, but Canadians, a sense of what are the measures we're putting forth to support people, to support businesses, how much do they cost, and we're giving regular updates on that. Obviously, the overall economic situation is very fluid right now, and we, we're trying to figure out where it will be from an economic standpoint moving forward. Uh, we haven't set a date for an economic and fiscal update because we're, we're looking at how we can understand that floor, understand where we're at right now. As we have a little bit more information, then we will come forward with an economic and fiscal update, as we should. Uh, but right now, I don't have a date for that, because that's, that's uh, but, information that I just don't have today. Right. Although, just add, tell me if you have this. Is, do, does finance have a plan on, you talk about decarbonization, does, is finance working on a model of how many businesses could fail? Is finance working on a model of recovery? If we have 2% growth, how long will the recovery? Uh, what is the fiscal strategy as we're getting into unprecedented levels of deficits? Well, I think the way to think about it is we are we are in an emergency phase right now. We've been building these programs to support Canadians, the ability to give credit to businesses through this emergency period. What we 
uh, are working on, as you know, is how we start to think about that transition. So we're working on the wage subsidy extension, for example. We, we said that we're going to extend that. We said right. that we're going to be consulting to think about how we can think about the criteria so that we can move into a different and, and gradual approach to supporting people and businesses, but do it as we get back to work. And so we are planning all these things right now, and we're thinking about how we do that in a way that gets us back to work into a, a new and, and different normal, and that will include how we support businesses, which we've rolled out. Uh, so all of this we're working on. Uh, of course, we, uh, we recognize the need to provide more information, but we don't want to have false precision. We need to be able to say this is, this is where we're getting to right. in terms of the economic situation so that we can give some, some good estimates for people. It's work we're doing, Evan. We're just not ready yet to, to announce a date for us to move forward with that, uh, with that uh, fiscal update. Mr. There was a very stark warning about a potential housing crisis from the head of CMHC, Evan Sedell. He told parliamentarians that by September, up to 20% of mortgages could be in arrears, 20%. He called this a debt deferral cliff, right? Housing prices are falling, people can't mm. pay. How concerned are you about that? And I, I mean, he's saying CMHC could be on the hook for $9 billion. This is, a, this is frightening. Well, I mean, I think that the, the head of CMHC is, is doing exactly what he should be doing in identifying the challenge in that sector. It's a really important sector to the economy. It's also really important for people who own homes or want to buy homes. So uh, that's a, a, an important job for him to do. We're worried about every sector of the economy, and, and certainly the housing sector is one of them. The best way we can be supportive, though, is to make sure we're supporting people so they can get through this time. That includes mortgage deferrals so they can have cash to get through this challenge. The best way we can do it in the future is to make sure there are jobs there. The, the, the issue that is most uh, challenging for people, obviously, in supporting their mortgage is if they don't have a job. So, so the large enterprise financing, which we were talking about, is about supporting employers, right. supporting jobs so that we can come out of this. Right. And you're right. I mean, we, we have uh, estimates that there's a broad range. You just gave the high end of his range, but there's a broad range of potential economic outcomes. Our job is to try and make sure that we're at the lower end of that range or even better than that because right. we've supported people, because we've supported businesses and can come out of this stronger. All right, got to leave it there, Minister. Always good to have you on the program. Thank you very much. Evan, thanks a lot. Take care. Coming up, China syndrome. The Conservatives accuse the Liberals of being too soft on China, of appeasing China. Should the Canadian government take a harder stance, what would that actually mean? We debate that with MPs next. Stay right here with Question Period. some real questions around China, of course, uh, in the coming months uh, and years that need to be answered, uh, and we will be part of that. So is Canada really following a policy of appeasement on China, as the Conservatives allege? Look, China still has two Canadians in prison, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. There are now massive crackdowns on freedoms in Hong Kong, and there are deep concerns about the lack of transparency around how the COVID-19 crisis was handled in China. All this as judgment in the case of the Huawei executive, Meng Wanzhou, is expected to be rendered on Wednesday. So what should Canada do? Is pulling money from the WHO like the U.S. has done acceptable? What does a harder line really mean? Let's bring in MPs to debate it. Rob Oliphant is the Foreign Affairs Parliamentary Secretary. Garnet Genius is the Conservative Critic for Canada-Chinese Relations. And Heather McPherson is the NDP's Deputy House Leader. Good to see you all, and I hope you're all well. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Uh, uh, Genius, because... Your party alleges 
a pretty strong allegation that Canada is following a policy of appeasement on China. First of all, why do you say that and what do you think they ought to do? Well, there are a number of different areas where we've seen uh, the government really letting Canadians down in terms of standing up for our interests and our values on the world stage. Uh, yesterday, uh, Minister Champagne said, uh, "Well, we got to wait and see. We got to we got to see what's see what's happening in Hong Kong first, and and wait to see what they do." When uh, the evidence was already clear that they that the, the government of, of China was intent on uh, completely ignoring their commitments with respect to, to Hong Kong, uh, and we need to have an independent investigation uh, into into uh, what happened with COVID nineteen, and that investigation should include an ability to gather information on the ground in China uh, and. Again, the government has uh, has been late to the game on supporting an investigation at all, has all been right. very reluctant to support uh, Taiwan and their, their engagement on this, and has not expressed support for an investigation that could actually gather facts on the ground in China. Uh, so there's a lot of areas of, 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 frankly, unacceptable weakness here from the government. Uh, Mr. Alf, I want you to respond to that, because your government has stood by China's actions in the crisis. The health minister... Patty Heidi has said, quote, there's no indication that the data that came out of China in terms of their infection rate and their death rate was falsified. Uh, other countries disagree. One of my own CTV colleagues asked her specifically about silencing uh, whistleblowers, doctors disappearing. She, she responded that it was feeding into conspiracy theories. Tell us once and for all, does your government believe China told the truth about COVID-19? Should there be an investigation in it? What do you say to th these allegations that you're too soft on China? We've been absolutely clear that our relationship with China is both important and complex, and we enter it every day with our eyes wide open. We have been very clear that uh, we want to have a full and complete and, uh, and thorough understanding and analysis after COVID-19 to understand uh, what worked, what didn't work, whether it was in Canada, in China, abroad, anywhere, with the WHO, with any of our partners. We're absolutely committed. What, what Canadians want is a government that will stand up first for its interests, stand up for principles and the rule of law, and stand up understanding our interests are complex and our relationship with every country, but especially China, is multidimensional and complex. But, 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 my, but just, I, I mean, I understand complex and all those multidimensional, but we've got two Canadians who your own government admits are the Chinese ambassador to Canada told Global News that they, he essentially was a tit for tat, released Meng Wanzhou and released the Canadians. And we, and we have been absolutely clear that Michael Kovrig, Michael Stavart, and dozens of other Canadians who are detained are top of mind for the Canadian government. It was an absolutely inappropriate and arbitrary move for the Chinese government to detain Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaffer. We've been absolutely clear about that, and we are working constantly. Our consular officials are working constantly right. to secure their release. However, at the same time, be back to that. We have a rule of law in Canada, and we have an extradition process that is underway. We will wait to hear what that uh, re results are, and we are watching. But we have been absolutely firm in condemning China's actions with respect to the detention of Michael Colbrig and Michael Spavard. And we will continue to do that as we will stand up for, for human rights in China and around the world. Heather McPherson, do you think they're too soft on China, given what's happened in Hong Kong, given the two Michael? I, I, I do. I feel like there's, there's a lot of uh, fence-sitting happening. I do feel like what we need to see from, from this government is, is a, a stance, is, you know, enough of this let's wait and see we need to have a more a more robust policy but i will tell you i feel like i'm in the middle of 
of, you know, you know, these these two young kids fighting because I don't feel like the Liberals have done enough to make sure that we are protecting Canadian citizens, that we are protecting Hong Kong, that we are looking at how we can be contributing. But I also look at the conservative um, position. You know, we saw that with Jason Kenney recently. We've seen that uh, with some of the things we've heard from some of the leadership candidates. And it's it's ham-fisted. It's it's very Trump. So it's what's, like Trump's yeah, okay, writing their scripts your, for but, them. It's too much. But what would much. the NDP advocate in terms of a harder position? What is it? So so what we need to do, there's a lot. First of all, this is complex. And I'll agree with Rob on that. And it is something that needs to have a long-term strategy. We need to be building our relationships with those those countries that we know are on the same page as us. We need to have better relationships. I'm looking at, at international development and foreign aid, and I'm seeing that China is all over Africa. And where are we? We're not there. You know, we want a Security Council seat, but we're, we're, we've abdicated our role in the world. We've abdicated the diplomacy we need to engage in, the trade we need to engage in, the, the foreign not, aid we need to engage in. We've abdicated. And so we're not in a good position right now uh, when it comes to negotiating and working with China and holding China to those rules of law that are so important to all Canadians. And, and, and I think Heather makes a lot of good points from the there. Truth. And, and frankly, when you look at Canada's uh, engagement in Asia and Africa, a good deal of it is through the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a Chinese government controlled development bank. We're giving hundreds of millions of dollars to the AIIB so that they can advance projects which are in, in their government strategic interest in Asia and Africa and effectively putting our, our partners in Asia and Africa in a, in a, in a vulnerable position relative to the uh, neo-colonial agenda of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, instead of spending money on the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, we could be developing partnerships uh, directly with those countries and offering uh, them alternatives in terms of working with uh, with de democracies uh, rather than being beholden to uh, things like the AIIB. Uh, the, the, the government uh, uses the word complexity to hide what is frankly their naivete uh, when it comes to China. And I would ask Rob this. He used the word condemn uh, about uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the, de the detention. Uh, but his government has refused to w use the word condemn uh, to, in response to the, the, the terrible uh, things happening in Hong Kong. Is he willing, on behalf of his government, to condemn uh, the violation of the one country, two systems uh, agreement? Uh, is he willing to condemn what is happening vis-a-vis -vis mm. Hong Kong right now? All right, uh, Mr. Olfan, just a last word to you to respond to some of these criticisms from the other parties. There, there could be nothing further from the truth from, from what either the left wing or the right wing is saying. Canada has an engagement policy with China with eyes wide open, with, with deep analysis and understanding of what is going on. We are cautious with respect to statements. Of course we are. We are concerned deeply about what is going on in Hong Kong and have been for months. We have made statements and demarches about that. Uh, we are following newer developments right now with respect to uh, human rights, citizens' rights, democracy. We stand firmly uh, with the uh, one state, two systems understanding of how Hong Kong uh, should be should be treated. There are hundreds of thousands of Canadians there. We will stand up for their rights, and we will do that. We have an unprecedented number of international partners around the world 
who have stood with us against the arbitrary detentions of Michael Kolbrig and Michael Spaver. We have worked with like-minded and allies with respect to Hong Kong. We are standing up um, around trade issues, around fighting for our farmers. We will continue to be the single party that fights for our farmers, whether it's the, the beef market, the pork market, right. uh, the canola market. We will continue to do that to ensure that our Canadian interests are protected, Canadian farmers' interests are protected, human rights are, are recognized around the okay. world. And we'll continue to do but that none with of this integrity is, We still have the two Michaels that are still in, in, you know, that are still in prison, Rob. And Absolutely. we still have a situation where, you know, you, the Liberal Party wouldn't want to would have a Canada-China Rob, all, all of the what other the parties do? in the House what of Commons, from do? right to left, believe that, that you are, your government okay. is weak and naive when it comes to China. Uh, and that's why all three opposition parties united to create the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations, uh, which your government right. opposed. So uh, there's differences of, of economic philosophy, obviously, but, but, but our parties are united in saying uh, that your government has not been effective at all vis-a-vis -vis the relationship with China. Unfortunately, I've got to leave it there, everybody. It's a long discussion, and it's ongoing as we watch the situation, by the way, in Hong Kong very closely. Rob Oliphant, uh, Garnet Genius, and uh, Heather McPherson, great to have all of you on the program. I appreciate your insights today. But coming up, do social conservatives now hold the balance of power in the Conservative Party's leadership race? Social conservative candidate Leslie Lewis joins us with her view. She's one of the final four candidates. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. So, she's a Toronto-based lawyer. She has a PhD in law. She has a master's in environmental studies. She's a mother. She's an immigrant to Canada from Jamaica. And she's the only woman and only visible minority in the conservative leadership race. She's also an unapologetic social conservative with strong anti-abortion views. Meet Toronto lawyer and candidate, rookie candidate, Leslyn Lewis. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad that you could make it on the program today. Thanks for having me, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are unelected. You're a rookie here. Why do you think conservatives should say, you know what, we should take a chance on a rookie and, and let her be the leader? Well, Evan, you know, I've been in the party since 2009, and I've actually um, held positions in the party um, at the grassroots level. And in 2015, the Honorable Stephen Harper asked me to do the party a big favor, and that step in after there was a scandal in a particular riding, Scarborough Rouge Park, and there was four weeks left on the election cycle, and I had to go in and run an election, and I did a very good job and received one of the highest vote counts in the GTA and in that writing's history. But you didn't win, and that win winability is what politics is all about. Now, you're an avowed social conservative, and social conservative issues have been making news, as you know. Just talk about that, because even on your website, you're openly what you call, quote, pro-life. You've been endorsed by the Campaign for Life Coalition. You want to ban the practice, what you call sex-selective abortion, and you, you, I'll quote you, protect women from coerced abortion. What does that mean practically if you were a leader or the prime minister? Would you support rolling back access to abortion? I was upfront with everybody. I wanted to make sure that I had no hidden agenda. And so, Evan, I've set out very four clear policies that the majority of Canadians agree on. I believe that it's time to unite this country around issues that we agree on. And so my four policies, the majority of Canadians agree that a fetus shouldn't be terminated on the basis of its sex, that a woman, or because it's a girl, 
and that a woman should not be forced into abortion and that women who find themselves in crisis situations should have assistance from the government in getting through those pregnancy crisis situations. I understand that, but would you support rolling back access to abortion? I know you want to ban international, any money that Canada uses that supports any kind of, um, that kind of birth control or uh, abortion issues. So would you stop access to abortion? No, make it more difficult. What I've said is that I oppose Canadian taxpayer funded um, overseas abortion because I oppose us imposing our values on other societies. That's that's clear. And I've set out four clear policies, Evan. I have not said anything other than those four clear policies. And that's why I put it in a no hidden agenda platform. So people know exactly which four policies I will be against. And that's the extent of my abortion policy. What about same-sex marriage? also been an issue. Would you march, I don't know, in solidarity in a pride parade? I know it's COVID-19, but if one could actually take place. Well, Evan, you know, I didn't march in a pride parade before I became, before I became a politician and entered into politics. And really, I actually don't like when I see politicians using the gay community to advance their careers. And it's not something that I would do. And Evan, I think the important thing is to make sure that you will represent all Canadians with equal dignity and respect. You can look at some of the case law that I have argued in support of that community um, when their rights were being infringed. So I, I think that the, the test is to make sure that you have somebody that's representing Canadians equally. On conversion therapy, it's been another big issue. Uh, you've said, quote, you've spoken to parents and pastors who are concerned about the government's ban on conversion therapy because it could criminalize them for helping children. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, Evan, it's how the conversion therapy is defined. Most people are thinking of conversion therapy as something that's very intrusive and, you know, and where people are coerced. But in this situation, the way it's defined as any act could include parents talking to their children about sexual issues or pastors talking to their children. And so I think that the the um, conversion therapy law is fundamentally flawed in that regards. But what, but, but, but how, on the other end, how would you, how would you protect people? I mean, the fundamental issue of conversion therapy, as you know, is the, the basic assumption is that you can talk someone into their sexuality and people are, people say, no, I'm, this is a biological issue. You can't convert me from being straight or convert me from being, uh, LGBTQ. Do you believe you can be quote converted? That's not what the legislation attempts to do though, Evan. The legislation attempts to even prohibit parents from speaking with their children. And we need to make sure that people who are facing certain issues in society, that we we have social um, mechanisms there to assist them. And one of the best is to have a strong family unit. And when you are alienating parents from their children, you are not offering assistance and love to that child. And I think it's very important that we maintain a strong family unit. And I think it's very important that right. we do not criminalize parents who love their children. Right, but, but we're not talking about criminalizing parents. We're talking about protecting the rights of someone who says they're gay. But on the no, environment... That's not, that's not true, Evan. You're talking about criminalizing parents to having a discussion with their children. That's what we're talking about, and that's what I'm opposed to. Right, well, uh, okay, I, I, I want to move on from conversion therapy issue. On the environment, you got an MBA, environmental studies. You'd say you abolish the, the carbon tax. 
If you were the uh, leader, would you commit to meeting Canada's Paris climate reduction goals? And if so, how would you get there if you don't have a price on carbon? Well, you don't have to have a price on carbon in order to um, be environmentally sustainable, to have environmentally sustainable practice. Actually, the carbon tax, in order for it to be effective in changing behavior, it would need to be 40 times higher. And such as, as such, it is only a wealth tax. It is not doing anything to to change the environment and to change the behavior. What I would do is I would incentivize companies to form, in, to create innovative technologies in order to um, protect the environment. And I would also invoke legislation which would assist the um, people in protecting the environment. And I would also implement an education, um, right. national right. education strategy. Would you, would you commit to meeting Canada's uh, agreed upon Paris Climate Accord, the carbon reduction emissions in the Paris Climate Accord? only if it doesn't interfere with our ability to develop our natural resources and it doesn't interfere with our national sovereignty. You're one of the four contenders, but you are basically, you're the only unelected person right now, so you're the outsider. What needs to change in the Conservative Party in order to get them to win? What would you change? Well, I would just uh, make sure that we are the big tent party, that we respect each other's differences and that means whether you're a progressive conservative or a social conservative, that we have respect for that. And also that we're united so that we can build a united country, address some of, some of the regional discontent issues we have, start putting Canada first, create a strong um, economy, and create our strong national security interests. Les and Lewis, great to meet you and great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. It, it was a pleasure, Evan. Thank you so much for having me. That's Lesson Lewis. Coming up, the federal government is going to give multi-million dollar loans to big businesses to try to help them weather the coronavirus storm. Is it a bailout by another name? And should airlines pay back customers for unused tickets? The Scrum is next with special guest BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang. Stay right here with Question Period. As you know, millions of Canadians work for large employers. We want to make sure that those large organizations get the bridge financing that they need so that they can keep Canadians employed. So big Canadian companies are getting a big business boost from the federal government. Businesses with an annual revenue of over $300 million a year can borrow at least $60 million and up. Will this new economic aid package prevent mass layoffs from major Canadian organizations like, I don't know, Air Canada? Is it just another government bailout in the end? To talk about that and the possibility of a mortgage crisis, a housing crisis, the scrum is here. Stephanie Levitz is a reporter with the Canadian Press. Annie Bergeron-Oliver, a reporter with CTV News. Joyce Napier, the bureau chief for CTV News here in Ottawa, and our special guest, BNM Bloomberg anchor, Amanda Lang. Great to have all of you here on a Sunday. Amanda, let me just start with you. Um, this is a big program. We're not sure what the uptake will be. What concerns do you have yeah. about who will get the money and who might not get the money? So Evan, so far the concern is that businesses want to rush to say we don't, we're not going to take it, um, and that has to do with how it's structured. Um, basically, what the government has said is you got to be big and you've got to be a loser. Uh, the private sector is not going to help you, and therefore we will. Oh, but you can't be such a loser that you were going out of business already. Who does that leave? Well, people who don't want to put their hand up and say we're that. Uh, so yes, we may find that the airlines have to avail themselves of the leaf. There may be some big energy companies that find that that is the facility that they're going to need. People aren't business 
businesses are not rushing to this because of the way it's structured. Um, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but right now it's got it's got kind of pariah written all over it. Oh, that's interesting. The take up Steph, one of those strings attached. You talk, Amanda talks about energy companies. One of the strings attached is you got to have a climate disclosure and sustainability plan. What concerns do you have about this program? Too many strings, not enough strings. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to a couple of the issues Amanda raised, and one of them is the energy sector. The energy sector has been crying out for targeted aid throughout this entire crisis as it continues to deal with whammy after whammy on its bottom line. If you're going to slap um, some kind of climate restriction on there, I mean, on the one hand, the Liberals have made no secret of the fact that they do believe that the climate sector, clean energy, energy growth is a path back to recovery for the Canadian economy. And perhaps this is the thing that forces a lot of energy companies to finally pivot for real, like many sectors of the economy are doing. They're, they're entering new uncharted territory, trying out new lines of business. Um, so perhaps, you know, there's room there for the energy companies to do what they want to do. But I think Amanda's second point is also really relevant. This pandemic is really restructuring a lot of Canadian business and retail would be a really great example of that. There are major retail chains who in theory are eligible for this funding and some of them historic Canadian chains. You know, a lot of women rely on them, for example, like Reitman's for, for everyday work clothes. But a couple of you know days ago, I think it was, Reitman said, nope, we're done. We're out of business. And the question becomes that, that narrow line between these companies mm -hmm. who think they might, if this had not happened, could they have continued a successful line of business or were they on their way out anyway? And and how do they decide which, which way that's going to go for them? Yeah, and Annie, take-up has been an issue with the wage subsidy as well. What are your concerns about this? Well, I think as Amanda was saying, this the onus is on these companies to put up their hand. And in a lot of cases, what this could mean is that the government now has up to 15% of those shares. So the government will now sort of be in the play when it comes to what future decisions there are. But I think what it comes down to, the concern is that there has to be some type of agreement here with the federal government to hand over this funding when it comes to jobs. What's stopping these companies from laying off employees not too long after the funding is given to them? So one, the government is now kind of picking and choosing essentially which of these major Canadian companies will stay in business, depending on how much funding the government decides to give them. And two, the government, I think, needs to drive a hard bargain. If they are going to be giving tens of millions, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars to these companies, they need to make very tough rules in terms of keeping their employees for at least as long as possible. Joyce, Air Canada, they've got their hand out. The air, no one questions the fact that the airlines have been killed. But, you know, one of the big factors is should they get any bailout or loan money if they're not giving back money people paid for unused tickets because of COVID? They're giving travel vouchers. Should they be obliged to pay the money back before they avail themselves of these government facilities? Well, this week, the Prime Minister, Evan, said uh, we're going to look at what other countries have done uh, in terms of reimbursing for cancelled flights. Most airlines outside of Canada, Europe uh, and the United States have paid out these, uh, these tickets. In other words, they've reimbursed people. In Canada, we've decided to, to give people vouchers, Air Canada namely. Um, we're told that they have over $2.5 billion in their coffers of unpaid uh, cancelled tickets to people. We know that they're in trouble and that they will probably take advantage of the leaf. So, interestingly, what will happen is if the government does bail out Air Canada, taxpayers will end up by reimbursing tickets to uh, stranded travelers of Air Canada. There are thousands of Canadians that have signed a petition saying, listen, we don't want your vouchers. They're only valid for two years. Right. Um, and obviously, we don't know if we'll be able to travel within the next two years. 
Um, we know that Air Canada is operating at 5% capacity. Our, our hearts go out to Air Canada, but on the other hand, uh, the people who bought tickets, some of them, you know, are out of pocket for tens of thousands of dollars because they bought tickets for the whole family. Aren't they entitled to a refund? Uh, Amanda, I know you want to weigh in on that. I want you to weigh in on that quickly, but also, are we facing a, a, a potential yeah. housing crisis? Because Evan Sedell, the head of the Canada Mortgage and Homes Corporation, warned that we've got a debt deferral cliff. Up to 20% of Canadians might not be able to pay their mortgage. Yeah. Is, is this a sign of things? We haven't even seen the full economic impact of all this. Yeah, and they're not unrelated, right? Because uh, the same consumers that are out of pocket on airline tickets are trying to figure out how to pay their mortgage. Um, just on the airlines, I will say the thing that jumped out at me this week was a reporter who used the word fair to the prime minister. There's nothing fair about any of this. I, in, in World War II, nobody said it's not fair that I can't get butter. It's a global pandemic. We need a functioning airline system. Uh, the government should be working with our two biggest airlines to make sure they're doing everything they can. My position would be that they should change their credit policies so that they make more sense and their reasons. Uh, refunds if they put them out of business, we all lose. Uh, will we all lose on the mortgage side of things because too many people are in houses they can't afford that were overvalued? Uh, I don't know how many people remember a, a real estate recession, 1991. People walked away from houses because they owned mortgages that were bigger than the value of their home. Evan Sedol is flagging that could happen. Uh, we have to take this seriously. He is going to do what he can to keep people out of new mortgages and in situations where they get in over their heads. But this is something that could affect the whole economy, right? A big part of our economy is driven by housing more than the energy sector. So we got to pay attention. People have to pay their mortgages if they can. It is a priority. Uh, Annie, you wanted to weigh in on that. Yeah, well, this was a house of cards that was ready to fall, and economists and experts had been talking about that long before the pandemic, and this exposed it. Interest rates have been historically low. The banks were trying to encourage people to spend, and people overextended themselves. Now the problem is there's going to be very stiff and painful discussions between homeowners and the banks, who are now in trouble, as well as the governments. And the problem for Trudeau is going to be trying to wean people off benefits like the CERB. You know, six months mortgage deferral comes up very quickly, and at the same time, those people are going to be trying to figure yeah. out how to pay their mortgages as their benefits are being scaled back, as they're going back to work part-time and maybe are not eligible for benefits like the CERB anymore or the wage subsidy maybe isn't applicable to them. All right, guys, unfortunately, i got to leave it there. There are so much going on. Amanda Lang, I want to thank you for being our special guest today. The rest of the scrum is going to stay with us. And coming up, Ontario Premier Doug Ford says he wants answers on the long-term care home fiasco, but is a government-run commission the way to go why not a public inquiry they are very different things the scrum's going to return special guest the former ndp leader and current ctv political commentator tom mulcair joins us stay with us it was the first premier in this entire country and the first leader that, that I, I've seen right across North America, including the United States, to come out with my hand up saying, I want a commission. And I'm not gonna wait two and a half years, like the wet lawfer or, or, or SARS, that took three and a half years to get answers while people are dying. We need answers now. So the Ontario government will launch what they call an independent commission to look at the tragedy, the failings in the long-term care home that have left hundreds, thousands dead from the COVID-19 forced that province and Quebec to call in the military. Just this week, a nursing home resident sick with the coronavirus was accidentally actually left behind in an empty Hamilton retirement home after the rest of the residents were transferred to a hospital. It's unbelievable. 
are Canada's elderly being neglected? Can the government-run commission really be independent, or should there be a national public inquiry instead? To talk about that and the great mask debate and the reopening debate, the Scrum is back, Stephanie Levitz is back, Andy Bergeron Oliver is back, so is Joyce Napier, our special guest this round, former NDP leader and current CTV political commentator Tom Mulcair. Tom, uh, good morning to you. Should there yeah, be a national public inquiry instead of an independent commission as Ontario has done? What's the difference? What difference would it make, Tom? We're going to have both. There's no doubt in my mind that the federal government will call a nationwide inquiry. But I know that Ontario will have one and Quebec will because they have different responsibilities in this. Walkerton is a good example of an inquiry that produced good results. What's really going to have to change is our approach to long-term care. And the question is, is Mr. Trudeau going to be willing to open up because he slammed the door on it last week to federal involvement in establishing norms, working with the provinces and providing part of the money to improve the system that has proven so tragically inadequate with thousands of deaths in our long-term care residences. Steph Levitz, uh, look, a commission doesn't have nearly the same powers as an inquiry. They're not just different words, they're very different. Doug Ford says we just need the commission to get answers quickly. Is that the right call? There, there is an element of that, right? I mean, if the goal of this investigation, let's just use the sort of neutral term here, is to both figure out what went, what went wrong and what needs to change in the future. It's that what needs to change in the future part that is most important now. I mean, as I think we'll get around to talking about, COVID is not gone. It is not going away. We are likely to get a second wave. And probably this is not the first pandemic we're going to get in modern day Canada that is of a large scope. Look back to the SARS review and all the recommendations it put forward and how maybe if we had followed some of those, we could have been in a better place right now to deal with COVID. So the question becomes, you know, these public inquiries, commissions, whatever you want to call them, they have produced merit over time, many different structures, many different forms. What they aren't is quick. And we are in a situation of a global pandemic where speed is of the essence to get our most vulnerable people protected. So the question becomes, what is the fastest way to figure that out? And the answer, perhaps partially, is don't we already know that? Don't we already know that the essential workers mm -hmm. in these residences are underpaid, that they were moving too fast between home to home? There weren't enough stores of PPE. There are certain key markers here that do we need to spend several million dollars trying to get them written down into a very nice, you know, binded digital book that everyone can refer to in 15 years mm -hmm. and say, oh, yeah, we probably should have done that. Uh, Annie, this plays into a larger question. The president of the Canadian Medical Association had a pretty stark warning to, Parla to the Senate, actually. He said, we are opening too early. We don't have nearly enough testing nationally or provincially. We don't have enough contact tracing. Hospitals don't have another, enough PPE. And he's predicting a second wave could be overwhelming. That's why he said, he told me straight up, we're opening too soon. What do we take from that stark warning? Basically, this is a guessing game that the provinces and the federal government are doing. They're hoping that we're ready to reopen. And if we have to, they're going to come back. When it comes to long-term care, it's all about political will. We know a lot of the reasons why these long-term care homes are being so devastated. The warnings have been there for years and just people didn't listen to it. They didn't put the investments in that were necessary. We know what needs to be done right now to prevent that second wave from being much worse. And we're not there. You know, in Ontario, for example, several weeks ago, Doug Ford said that in order 
order to even talk about reopening, we had to be, quote, well below 200 new cases mm -hmm. a day. We're now more than 400 new cases per day. They wanted contact tracing done in about 24 hours and 90% of cases. We're not there. Federally, you know, our capacity is 60,000. Trudeau has been talking for weeks about increasing capacity, and yet we're anywhere from about 24,000 to 28,000, mm -hmm. so not even half of the capacity. So we're talking a big talk in the federal government, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of movement, and that should have been done weeks ago. We've been talking about increasing testing and contact tracing and increasing availability, so anybody who wants a test can get one. But in a lot of communities, people are seeing the testing numbers go down. People don't know that they can get tested, and they're not. And those are things that yeah. make us unprepared for the second wave if you talk to many medical experts. Yeah, and in the majority, what weigh in on that, the warning of the second wave. And then in the midst of that, we're in the midst, middle of a to mask or not to mask debate. Suddenly, Dr. Teresa Tam says, actually, you know what? You should probably, I recommend you do wear a mask to help others when you're out in public, but it's not mandatory. So it's very difficult to see what the strategy is in terms of the great reopening. Well, there doesn't seem to be so much of a strategy as much as, listen, if not now, when? Uh, when is the right time? The opening has to start because this is yeah. not sustainable. It's not sustainable psychologically. It's not sustainable uh, for a mental health point of view. Um, you know, loneliness is now starting to weigh on people. Uh, there is a lot of uh, violence in the home. So it's not sustainable. So the mm -hmm. governments don't really have a choice. They're doing it now, but are we ready? No, we're not. Are we even ready for a second wave? That's what happened uh, when they emptied hospitals and sent a lot of these older uh, patients into these long-term care homes, and that's where they got sick. So, you know, we, we, our healthcare right. system may not even be ready for it this time around. Tom, Tom, weigh in on this. Are we ready? The, the opening seems to be proceeding. The numbers aren't there. Uh, and uh, what do you make of this whole where we're going to all end up wearing masks or not? What do you see coming if we do experience a second wave? Well, in this patchwork quilt of different provincial regulations and norms, you have to go with batting average. Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, she's got the highest batting average. And just this week, she was warning that there's never been a pandemic in history that didn't have a second wave. We should all be listening to her. It's a shame that the federal government didn't use the powers that it had to try to spread out the best practices because right now here in Quebec, we just announced yesterday, Evan, that all day camps are gonna be open this summer. No problem at all. We've got one of the worst records in the world. And so we, we've lost thousands of people, thousands of dead just in the long-term care centers. It's a great deal of concern to, to parents, to average citizens, but I think that Joyce Napier is right. There has to be a little bit uh, of movement because there are starting to be strains on people at the psychological level as well. All right, guys, got to leave it there. Great discussion today. We are far from over on this. We're still in the early innings. Tom Mulcair, Annie Bergeron, Oliver, Joyce Stapier, Steph Love, it's great to have you on the program. And thanks to all of you for joining us and sharing part of your Sunday with us. Stay safe, stay patient, a lot of patience, and take good care. I'll be back at 5 p.m. Eastern time on CTV News Channel for Power Play. Please join me then, and we'll be back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching. Take care.